Hello and welcome back to Spy Hard's podcast. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur. And we've got something very, very special for you. Actually, uh, a very last minute thing has happened here. We didn't get a chance to talk about it on our Bad Company review. But Cam, who do we have joining us today? Yes, we are joined by actress Gia Carides, who appeared in the movie Bad Company as Julie, the um, girlfriend of David Ogden Steer's character, who plays a very pivotal role in the film. But she's also known for playing Robin Swallows in Austin Powers, The Spy Who Shagged Me. Yeah, this is a, a very, very exciting chat. We really hope you enjoy it. I mean, of course, there is Austin Powers and Bad Company, but she was also Liz Holt in Strictly Ballroom. She's also Cousin Nikki in the Big Fat Greek Wedding films. So I think without further ado, Cam, roll it. And joining us today on the show, one of the stars of this week's film, Bad Company, it's Miss Gia Caridis. Hello, Gia. How are you doing? I'm very well. Thank you, guys. It's a pleasure to have you here. Uh, this one came together very quickly, and it's—I uh, mean—it's going to be an interesting film to talk about because there's not a lot of behind the scenes when it comes to Bad Company. Really? So I'm very yeah. There's not a lot out there at all, so I'm really curious to sort of pick your brain about it. Um, so let, let's 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 jump in straight away with sort of Bad Company. Obviously, I want to touch on Austin Powers, Strictly Bore, when we have a chance later on. But am I right in assuming this was your first American film? Exactly. It was my first US film and I was so excited to book it. I put an audition on tape with a casting director um, in Los Angeles. So I was cast from a tape and I flew up to Vancouver with the job. Very nervous because I thought, oh, when they really meet me, maybe I'll lose the job. You know, like <laughs> it's it's nerve wracking when you get something from a tape. You You sort of want to book it in the room so that you know you've met everybody so I definitely had a bit of nerves around losing the job anyway we had a beautiful table read and I sat next to Lawrence Fishburne and my character was a southern girl so I did a southern accent and uh at the time I had I, I had just met my then fiance who later became my husband of my child but we are now divorced but I just met him and uh, that was Anthony LaPaglia and he'd just done the movie The Client with Susan Sarandon and I just spent a lot of time in New Orleans with him and Memphis. So I'd been working on my accent for Bad Company while I was there. So I was very excited to have had that opportunity and I sat next to Lawrence and we did the table read and at the end he looked at me and he said, where are you from, girl? And I said, I'm from Sydney, Australia. And he went, what are you talking about? I thought you were... And he, he completely bought it, so I felt relieved. Our director was British, beautiful Damien Harris. Um, he was happy with the accent. Um, but a funny story, Ellen Barkin took me aside and said, I think you should uh, pull your accent back a little. We're doing more neutral accents. And I thought that was so interesting. Um, I didn't. I didn't take her. I listened to Lawrence and the director, and they seemed to be very happy with it. So <laughs> I ignored Ellen's instruction. It's actually interesting because I, I, my research wasn't that great because I, I have, I had seen Strictly Ballroom way before seeing this, and I'd seen you in, in Austin Powers, but in my head you were American, and so when I did the research, I was like, you're actually Australian, and so you actually completely sold me on the accent as well. To be fair. Oh, thank you. Was it difficult to learn it? Like, are you someone who naturally is able to pick up accents or does it like, was it a real stretch? 
no, I'm kind of a natural with accents. I love, I love them. So I, I just sort of have an ear for it and I just have to studiously listen to it over and over and over and over. And like I said, I just spent some time at that point in New Orleans and Memphis, so about six weeks. So I'd, I'd had a really good earful of the Southern accent. So, uh, yeah, I was happy with how Julie Ames ended up sounding. <laughs> She's such a great character. I love that character. Yeah, you mentioned, yeah, what a great character she is. And when you, you know, saw the initial script for the movie, um, was it pretty much presented on the page, the character you'd be playing? Did it change over the course of the process? No, it was completely written what she was, that she was the judge's, uh, you know, lover on the side that he kept in her own apartment and showered her in Versace bright green mm. and red suits. And and uh, God bless. Uh, I mean... I mean, look, I'm a little brunette. I'm a little 5'1 brunette. So admittedly, with all the cliches that are always in our head of male gaze kind of cliches, when I read it, I thought, oh, they're never going to choose me. They're going to choose a blonde, you know. So I was thrilled when I got that part. And I think it's really cute seeing me on screen with beautiful big David Ogden Steers, <laughs> who was such an extraordinary actor and a big man, you know. And I think... His little Julie was very cute next to him. And and I was a lovely contrast to Ellen Barkin, who is kind of a 5'6 blonde. And so it worked quite well. And we had a brilliant, we had a brilliant DP. The DP, I believe, was Jack Green. And he's a massively brilliant DP. And uh, I've never in my life, I don't think, looked as good as I did in that movie because he's an incredible he was an incredible DP. Well, it's not just the, uh, the the costuming as well, but like the sets and everything that were designed for that film. It's such a, a luxurious looking film. Everywhere you look on throughout the sort of hour and a half it runs for, it's just stunning. Yeah, it's stunningly beautiful, isn't it? So beautiful. Uh, Damien Harris, great style. And yeah, the whole design team and obviously Jack, cinematographer. And, uh, you know, it was really, Really beautiful to watch Ellen and Lawrence at their height and in their peak. Uh, I'm afraid the world, I think, didn't want to watch that love story. We didn't run long at the cinemas. Um, we were beautifully reviewed, though. It's a beautiful film. But I don't think America was ready for the, the mixed race love story. I wish they would re-release it right now because I think it would do really well right now. Mm -hmm. Be incredible. I think it'd be really well received right now. I think also now that it's just for here in Canada, streaming on Disney Plus, or I'm sure probably Hulu in the US, like there's a lot more access to it because, you know, when we talked about reviewing it, we had a lot more feedback of people actually going out and watching the movie because I just think for a long right. time it kind of vanished. Right, right. I know cinematically it, um, it, it literally only ran for about, I can't really remember. I have the number of three or four weeks in my head, but I could be wrong. Again, we'd have to research. But it definitely only had a very short cinema run, which was very sad for me because it was a great role and it could have really helped me a lot more than it did uh, at the at the beginning of my career in the States. And for Lawrence and Ellen, for me, it was Oscar-worthy for both of them. They were extraordinary. Angela could have... Yeah, could have been nominated for a supporting Oscar. I mean, it was a really well-acted film. 
Spalding Gray, amazing. Well, it's you know, Disney, I think, were overseeing it all, but they put it out in about 300 theaters in just the United States. It had barely got an international release as well, so it really didn't help it get in front of audiences to see it in the first place. So I'm glad that we can talk about this now and you know, maybe get it in front of a few more eyeballs. Yeah, um, that's but, fabulous. But just going back to sort of the character of, of Julie Ames, um, a couple of questions, but the first one is, what attracted you to this character? What made you want to tell their story? Look, at that point in my career, it would have been just, it was literally an audition that came my way, a role that was right. It, it, it's not like I was choosing between seven jobs. I would have just been trying to nail that job and get that job. Literally, did I find her appealing and interesting? A hundred percent. I mean, I just, I found the, I found, I just tried to find poetry and romance and beauty in that character. And the movie is so much based in film noir. And I was just curious, you know, you talked about learning the accent for the role, but did you do any research or try to, you know, base the performance a little bit on some past film noir characters or anything like that? I mean, only osmosis, uh, you know, growing up watching films that we love that are set in other times that are film noir, that are thrillers, that are those kinds of films with secret love stories and all of it that was probably all in my head and played a part but I can't cite a film uh, I definitely did not pour over specific films and try and uh, pay homage to anything in particular no I, I I'm sure I was I, I'm sure my look was probably uh I'm, I'm sure hair and makeup and everybody were were lending themselves to certain actresses looks uh, over a period of time no one was cited specifically to me um, but I mean, I look at it and it's just, it looks so beautiful. Uh, the hair, the makeup, the, the way Jack shot me, it, she looks like somebody from another era. I mean, there's something very classically beautiful about how they made me look, um, the costuming and the choices. And yeah, it was a very beautiful look. One thing that we noted when we were talking about the film is it seems like of all the characters, you are the only one that is mostly pure. Everyone else seems to be slightly evil in some way, shape, or form. I mean, you do try to do something at the end that's quite dastardly, potentially, but you don't do it. Yeah, but and and other than the fact that she's having an affair with a married man, uh, she is quite pure. Yeah, her heart. She she truly loves Beachy, and she's given herself to that relationship. Um, who knows how he's. Uh, explained his wife either now that i'm an older woman with life experience uh i it certainly didn't cross my mind back then i wonder how he's explained his wife but now i'm thinking i wonder how beachy explained his wife to julie <laughs> you know he he may have explained it in a way that made her feel okay to enter into that uh illicit relationship Love is a, is a powerful thing, and you, you mentioned sort of the love and the sort of the, that side of the character earlier. But um, moving on to that big scene at the end, the big old shootout. Yeah. Uh, did you? Did you actually? You're firing a gun. Did you do any sort of weapon training for that at all? Any stunt training for it? I just remember that it was very safe, and there were weapon people there, and we literally, we the actors, were told to look down the barrel of everything that we held in our or any take was done. Um, I would have been super nervous about all of it because at 17 on a different film, a man was killed 
a focus puller, not when I was on set, but it was a film I was one of, uh, I was not on the set that night, but it was very impacting um, that that person died that night. And I, safety on set for me is so primary. Uh, I definitely remember gun people bringing the guns to us for the take only, opening the barrels, showing us the blanks or the empty or whatever it was. And we had to look at it with our actor eye while they're looking at it with their gun person eye while the first AD is overlooking and overseeing. So it was the three of us all looking in and agreeing what we saw was what we saw before we did it. Um, I can't really remember how physically far away anybody was from me because in that scene I know that Ellen and Lawrence shoot each other mm-hmm. and I shoot with my eyes closed and hit everything in the room <laughs> So I was probably, when I did my shooting, I would imagine, if memory serves me correctly, I think no one was in front of me except items, although that can't be true because there must have been a master that showed me shooting glass shelves and not contacting them. There must have been a master, actually, that holds all three of us. Yeah, guns. I mean, terrifying. But it was a lot of years ago, that film. So it's hard to really remember exactly what went down. And when you watch that scene, it's like, it looks like it'd be very technically difficult to pull off because there's a lot going on in that big finale. Like it's a very explosive ending to the film. Yes. Yes. One of the things I thought was really interesting about your character was if you, if this movie had been made in decades past, I think Julie would be a little more of a passive character. But one of the things I found really interesting is She's often kind of the wallflower in scenes, but you can see she's always paying close attention. Yeah. And that continues to pay off over the course of the movie to the point where she's going to get the gun. And you get the sense that this character is a lot brighter than the movie initially presented her. Oh, yeah. And I'm just curious how much fun that was to play because, you know, you're, it's your first major, you know, Hollywood film. Oh, my God. So much fun. It was such a dream role because mm-hmm. she looked like it. Yeah, she looks like just the little bit on the side that bitchy has. And then she absolutely drives everything and ends up in the limo with the cash, riding off into the sunset. I mean, she doesn't have a man anymore, but she has everything and she's dobbed in the right people and she's on her merry way. She makes it out with the cash. I mean, it's a fantastic role. It's a fantastic role. It would be hard to get your hands on. I'm looking at it now thinking, that would be a really hard role for a complete nobody to get their hands on right now today because she steals, she kind of steals the whole movie. She Her character does. On paper, she plot-wise kind of steals the movie. I mean, you can't steal a movie from Ellen Barkin and Lawrence Fishburne. They're extraordinary. <laughs> but she was a meaty, fantastic character. For a girl who'd just come from Australia with Strictly Born to get that role, that was a coup. It was at, at the time I was I was. I couldn't believe I'd gotten it. I was so, so excited. And I was so excited for that film to be really seen and for it to perhaps really put me on the map. So it was a real bummer when it was quiet, that film. I'm so proud of that film. I love it. I love Damien Harris, our director, and I love those, love that cast. You know, I have nothing but great memories of it. But I wish it had been a massive blockbuster. Could have changed <laughs> my career enormously. <laughs> 
Well, you mentioned the the fabulous cast of the film, and we, we a little bit about Lawrence and Ellen earlier on. But just what are some of your memories of working with them on set? I know you have the one main scene at the end, and sort of in the elevator and stuff. But just any any memories of those two? Yeah, look, Lawrence was just a complete gentleman and a delight, and so smart and so warm and so uh, caring and professional and classy. That's all I can say about him. And my scene in the red suit when I come to visit him uh, was just so much fun to shoot. He was extraordinary to work with. Um, Ellen was spiky and uh, she did not have a warm energy. She was a cool fish. Uh, She liked me and she let me know that in her ways. but she was more difficult to get close to. She wasn't as warm, that's for sure. But she was fun to work with. And, you know, our characters were supposed to cat and mouse not really dig each other. So it really worked for it uh, in, in that one scene that we've got, you know. It's not a, not a lot of time on screen together. And the beautiful actor, and I'm just blanking on his name because I'm just too old right this second, but <laughs> the beautiful actor who I buy the gun from. What is his name? The blonde actor. Is that Daniel Hugh Kelly? Dan Hugh Kelly, yes. Oh, my God. He was so much fun. We had a great time that day. I love that gun buying scene. Yeah, he was fantastic. Yeah, just a beautiful. He plays that so cool. Like, he's so calm about giving the gun over and everything. And he was really, like, a funny, smart, and charismatic, and just great. Like, a real old school, absolutely brilliant character actor who'd been in everything and was extraordinary and just a joy to work with. Just one of those actors that you look up to and you think, yeah, I just want to work my whole career as much as you. Like, he's just brilliant. And and David Ogden Steers was beautiful, so sweet, so kind, so lovely. It was a beautiful set. Our producers were wonderful. And as I said, Damien Harris, our director, so kind, English, cool, hip. Like he was just a fantastic guy. Yeah, it was great. It was it was a really, really good first experience in the US, even though it happened in Canada. And Canada was beautiful. I loved being in Vancouver. Uh, my makeup artist, Victoria, was extraordinary. And, yeah, it was a, a complete joy to be on that set at all times. I am curious because, you know, you, we talk about how Bad Company didn't perform hugely at the time. And you say it would have been amazing for a career if it had been a big blockbuster. But I am just wondering, like, later down the road when you went in for other jobs, if that movie was ever brought up or that performance just by people that had, had seen you in the past. It really wasn't. Not to my knowledge. It may have huh. been something that other directors liked. And it was certainly always on my show reel. Like, I grabbed scenes from that and put it all over my reel because it was beautiful work. Hmm. Um that's the sad thing as an actor, as you age, you really can't keep putting things that are too young on your reel because you've got to look like you look now. And it's it's heartbreaking sometimes to, to leave things out uh, that you loved. Um, I mean, you can always do a montage if it's a film like Strictly Ballroom, Rostin Powers, where you just want to say, remember she was in this, you can sort of montage it in. But Bad Company is one of my favourite performances, one of my favourite characters, and I'm so proud of it, proud of the work. And, yeah. Yeah, it could have been a real uh, debutante sort of here she is moment if, if it had mm. been a massive, you know, big blockbuster. And as the person that, you know, brought this character to life, did you ever consider to yourself, like, whatever became of Julie? 
<laughs> no, I've never thought that, but that's a great thought. I love that. <laughs> I love that. I wonder what did become of Julie. Well, she had plenty of cash. Mm-hmm. So she could take care of herself. She wasn't going to need another beachy to take care of her. But, you know, who knows what Julie found in her life. She may have remained true to him forever. Who knows? Maybe maybe she's running Toolshed now. <laughs> she, was, she was truly in love with him. Like she wasn't just a bit playing. That's not how I played her anyway. No, for sure. Um, and just I suppose my last question on Bad Company is, and you sort of you said about the legacy of the film, but just for you, it, what does this film mean to you, looking back on it now? It, it means a lot because it was the first US job I ever got cast in. And I think I got that job after I'd been in the US for about five or six months. I remember at the time, Anthony said, I'd been auditioning for lots of pilots, TV pilots, and I'd gone to network a couple of times, hoping to get a pilot just laughed and said, you've just jumped about 10 rungs getting this role. This is an amazing role. And this is an incredible A-list cast. You've just jumped. And, you know, I was thrilled and excited. And, yeah. And it was funny, every pilot season I auditioned for tons of TV pilots and never booked them. And then invariably I would get a movie right at the end of pilot season. And I remember he used to laugh and say, you're the only film actor I know that's desperate to get a TV career, but you just keep getting movies. So, I mean, I was always (laughs) happy. I mean, I'm just happy to work and have no snobbery around whether it's film, television, theatre. I just love to work. I love the connection. Mm. I also don't care if it's A-list or B-grade or C-grade. Like I genuinely, if I'm driving to work at 5.30 in the morning to sit in a makeup chair, I don't care if it's a kind of nighttime soap opera, cheesy piece of crap, if it's full of joyful people that love what they're doing on set in that day during the process, I'm the happiest girl on the planet. If it's Baz Luhrmann or Mike Nichols or, you know, Bad Company, you know, Damien Harris, I'm extra thrilled, of course, to be working with incredible people, but it really doesn't bother me either way. I'm such an actor at heart. I just want to be at work. And if I could, you know, like when we're younger, we might have kind of a a bit of snobbery around, oh, I just want to be in extraordinary films. I don't want to do things that will become boring or dull or, or, you know, TV that may become repetitive or not challenging. But now if I could really choose my job, I would choose a White Lotus or a Pea Valley. I would choose an ongoing series. It gave me a longer time with extraordinary filmmakers. I'm so obsessed with White Lotus and with Pea Valley right now. They're just my two favourite shows on TV. I, I cut off my hands to be in either of them. <laughs> I keep hearing about White I haven't watched it yet, but... I, I keep hearing about White Lotus, to be fair. It seems to be all everywhere I look. Extraordinary film. He's absolutely brilliant, Mike White. He's just incredible. Incredible director, incredible writer, incredible casting, and it's just superb. Both both White Lotuses are superb. But Pea Valley is extraordinary as well. You've got to watch that show. It's on the Stars Network. It's set in a, in a, in a strip joint in Mississippi in a, a made-up town, but... We are in the lives of those human beings, and it's so beautifully written by a female playwright, African-American writer. Again, but I need to look it up. But the writer of Pea Valley, extraordinary. 
absolutely extraordinary. She's amazing. Katori Hall. Yeah, showrunner and creator. And she is um, a playwright. And it's just an extraordinary show. So shout out to them. I want to be in Pig Valley badly. White Lotus. Going on a bit of a Hear whiplash me out now. There. I, I, yeah, we'll put it out there. Don't worry. We'll, we'll, we'll get it out there. Put it out um, there. I, I, all of the 10 people I know. Um, uh-huh. um, but a bit of a whiplash from a very serious film that we very much enjoy talking about to a film we haven't spoken about yet, and that is Austin Powers. Oh, yes. Uh, a very serious film, of course. Uh, the first one, 1999's The Spy Who Shagged Me. I actually went back and watched it today, uh, specifically your scene, um, and I'd completely forgotten all about it. But uh, how did you get connected with Austin Powers? I literally just auditioned for that. Um, I literally auditioned for that job. I I had met Mike Myers briefly because when I first got NX, was my then, sorry, uh, fiancé, was uh, doing a pickup shot on how I married an axe murderer. Mm. So I met Mike very briefly on the set when Anthony did that pickup shot. That literally is not why I got the role, I don't believe, and it's not to do with my audition. I literally was sent in that, and the day I auditioned, I remember, uh, I remember... What is her name? That brilliant actress. I'm just blanking. A brilliant actress came out of the room just before I went in. And I thought to myself, oh, well, I'm not going to get it because she's just walked out. Um, she was an actress who was on SNL at the time. And I just thought, I don't have a hope in hell. But I walked in the room and there was Jay Roach, director. Mm-hmm. I don't think Mike was in the room. God, isn't that terrible that I can't remember? Mike was not in the room for sure. He wasn't. A reader was probably in the room or casting director was reading. Sure. But I walked in and um, and Jay Roach said, hi. And I said, hi. He said, uh, do you have any questions before we start? And I said, no, 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 I have no questions. Because I tried not to speak too much because usually I was doing an accent for the character. And for this character, I was doing British. But, um, mm-hmm. yeah, try not to get too chatty in your Aussie accent because you want to just be the character. So I said, no, no, I have no, no no questions. I said, is there anything you want to tell me before I start? And I meant direction, right? Sure. And he just looked at me and he said, just that I loved you in Strictly Ballroom. Uh-huh. And that was just a beautiful thing for him to say. So I got Austin Powers because Jay Roach loved Strictly Ballroom. You know, more than a connection of having met Mike briefly. But it may have hurt that I met Mike briefly. And I think I did a good audition. And I love that character too. What a great, fun character. And were you quite familiar with the original film at the time of going in for that one? That's a really good question. And I honestly cannot remember. Okay. I cannot remember at the time if I had seen it or knew it. I wonder if I did. Because it's funny. uh, Mimi Rogers is in the first one. And Mimi, mm-hmm. Mimi, when I went to Vancouver to make Bad Company, right after that, my then fiance Anthony did a movie in Vancouver with Mimi Lovers. Right after, so I met Mimi right after Bad Company, like <laughs> five years, whatever, five years later. I do Austin Powers, and it's the second film, and that Mimi. So we're all, isn't it crazy how life connects us all? 
No kidding. Yeah. It all leads back to Vancouver, apparently. Yeah. Back to Vancouver. Seriously. And uh, yes. So Austin, yeah, I loved making that film. I didn't work long on it. It was only a couple of days, I think. It was a big dance sequence, so we definitely had a couple of days rehearsal. Not that I had a lot of, like, big moves. Heather had all that group dancing with her backup dancers, some choreographed stuff, uh, Heather Graham. So, yeah, there were definitely there were rehearsals of that scene. Lots of playback of American Woman song and got stuck in our heads and... You know, great fun. But actually, I remember something physically went wrong with me on the day I shot that. I think I woke up and I had a terrible stiff neck. So I had to go to work. And I like, I, I was, I had one of those necks from like doing oh. some dance mm -hmm. trick days earlier. And I like woke up and couldn't move and like took a, not pain meds, but like whatever I took, like a, like an Advil, like a heavy Advil and uh, had to just get into it. But you can't see it can't see any of that in the performance can't see a stiff neck <laughs> isn't it crazy Paul Mercurio, Paul Mercurio shot the finale of strictly ballroom in the gold jacket yeah finale mm -hmm. on a broken ankle oh my god i didn't know that he had a broken ankle at the time pain meds and stuff shot into him cortisone probably and he just got on that dance floor in that gold jacket and kicked ass on a broken ankle. He'd broken it. It wasn't sprained. I think it was truly broken. And then, yeah, he, it healed over the making of the film. So slowly over the film, you know, but we opened our first two days shooting with a finale. It was crazy. We were all flown from Sydney down to Melbourne. We were shooting at a real, uh, a real festival. So there were real ballroom dancers everywhere and they kind of played some of our extras and crowds. Wow. And poor old kicked ass with a broken ankle. That's a real show must go on attitude yeah, right there. Yeah, totally. And that's, you know, mine was a minor version of that when I woke up that morning and couldn't <laughs> move my freaking head. I was like, oh, my God, how am I going to do this? My neck, uh, stiff neck, like <laughs> crazy. I'm curious on the set of... Austin Powers, because, you know, Jay Roach is the director, but like this whole world has been concocted by Mike Myers and he's so immersed in that creation. So when it comes to the specifics of shooting on there, like how much input is, you know, Mike Myers giving as the writer and creator versus Jay Roach? Yes. Um, look, Jay's on the set in a really beautiful way, in a really generous, cool, smart, trusted by Mike implicitly fantastic way and dealing with all of us actors as the director there was no power struggle that i could see mm -hmm. mike was the creator and it was clear and for sure mike would have a word and give you notes but you took them lovingly what i remember so clearly about mike was though after every single one of his takes every take he checked in with his then wife extraordinary robin Roseanne, super smart super funny super brilliant they'd met at improv school they'd known each other from a very young age and consequently spent many many years married he checked every move he made with robin after every time he would whisper something she'd whisper something he'd go back and do another take so i mean she was 
she was, uh, I believe, very important to his work at that time. Her, her input um, was very important to him at that time. I remember actually him mentioning her a lot during interviews for the promotion of that movie. And I even to the point where I remember seeing the movie and your character's name, I wondered was yeah. potentially named in tribute to her. Of course, I'm sure it probably was. And, you know, he created that amazing character based on her mother. The Coffee Talk character was based on her mom. Yeah, I mean, they had an incredible connection and, you know, a substantial length marriage. And she's an extraordinary woman. Now, you got to get in a little bit of a fight with uh, with Mike Myers uh, and thrown around a wee bit. Yes. Um, would you, any memories of that, particularly the sort of the stunt work there? Yes, I have fond memories of it. And the crazy thing is that beautiful stunt woman was Lynn Salvatore. We are totally still friends. We literally, we hang out now in our hmm. Wow. She doubled me on that. She later doubled me of years earlier earlier or later she doubled me on letters from a killer with with uh, patrick swayze so she doubled okay. me on that movie in 97 so austin powers one, it was one year earlier yeah, one year earlier so lynn doubled me twice in a row she rode horses for me galloped uh in letters from a killer and we became really good pals and and fell out of cars and jumped on the back of trucks and did all this rough stuff because that had a lot of stunts oh she also jumped off a bridge into a, a ocean into a lake or whatever uh with another stuntman as patrick for me and so then on austin powers yes she took the bullet and the knife and the ball and all that <laughs> stuff yeah so it was great fun doing the bits that I got to do and it was great fun watching Lynn do the rough stuff and I just, I've got great photos of us, us sitting on the sidelines in our matching outfits and then I've got other lovely photos from the Patrick Swayze movie sitting side by side in our denim jeans and, and plaid shirts. It, it's so cute when you make friends with your stunt double. I don't know if a lot of people do. Lynn and I genuinely became very good friends to the point where we literally hang out, still hang out. Very like once upon a time in Hollywood. Totally. Like we literally hang out right now. It's amazing. Yeah. We're friends. And we love that we're friends. You ended up getting uh, blasted by a bazooka, I believe it causes it, and, and with some prosthetics afterwards. Do any oh recollection of putting those on? I sat in a chair for hours and hours and hours. <laughs> firstly, firstly, they mould your head, so you sort of have to get your head moulded. That stinks because they use something that's got like rotten egg gas type vibe. And then on the day when you have to put that prosthetic on, yeah, you got to sit still and the whole head thing goes on and it's painted on and glued and it's brilliant work and somebody extraordinary does it. You just got to sit still and take it. It takes hours and it takes, you know, a good 40 minute day. But uh, yeah, it's quite hell getting it on. But it looked fantastic, didn't it? <laughs> and there was a there was a deleted scene that you actually had like a bonus. You popped up later in the film because they kept you in the boot of the car. But that got cut from the film. I think that was a really gutting thing there because I thought the it was really funny. The car, my God, I I don't even remember that. I remember the deleted scene of the handshake with the boobs jiggling as he asks me lots of questions because he wants to keep shaking my hand, <laughs> yeah. watch her breasts, and just keeps making up 
any questions that mean nothing to ask her. That's, I remember that. I don't remember in the boot of a car deleted scene. What is that? It's like uh, him, uh, uh, him, I should say, Mike Myers, Austin Powers, and Heather Graham are sat in the car, and I think someone goes to shoot at them, and then he goes, oh, boot, and then pulls, pulls you out. Pulls me out and boot. uses me as a shield. That's right. I remember, yeah. remember it. Okay, so is that watchable in the deleted scenes? Yeah, it's on It's on deleted scenes, and it's in, on YouTube as well. Oh, okay. I, I must have a look at that. I feel like I have never seen that. I've seen the boob one because some fan went on to YouTube and slowed it down. <laughs> Made off. Oh, wow. In, okay. In, in extreme slow motion. So that's one for those fans to enjoy. They're out there, I suppose. <laughs> oh, my God. Yes, I'm sure. Um. <laughs> Well, I think I, I think that wraps me up for Austin Powers. Cam, do you have anything? I just had one question, which is about, you know, I'm just curious when you are making this film, how much improvisation is working its way into the performance versus what's scripted? In Austin Powers? Yeah. Um, it was pretty tightly scripted. Um, I have the tagline in the Spillers uh, joke I want to share with the fans. Um, I think the run went... Uh, What's your name? Robin Swallows, maiden name Spitz. Well, which one is it, baby, Spitz or Swallows? And I had the tagline, either way, it's a pleasure. Ah. He got it, but he cut it. Ah. So it lands, it, the scene ends on his line, which also works and is fabulous, but I lost the oh. tagline. Boo-hoo. And I thought either way, it's a pleasure. It was really a funny line. And it puts her back on on top but anyway um that was the original end line of that well we, we've got it now we've got it recorded yeah you do i don't remember improvising really anything i think everything was just scripted and mike and jay were pretty specific and and you know mike wanted his jokes it is written and they were brilliant so whether he had other writers helping him write that script he may have had other writers were there another writer or two i think there might have been another writer or two just punching or helping or there's just sure. there's just uh michael mcculler's credited and and mike myers yeah mike mcculloch is it mcculler's i believe yeah that's how you pronounce it yeah yeah absolutely yeah that's the guy i was remembering yeah well, I mean, it, yeah. it, it, you proved that Robin was invulnerable because you took all those bullets and bazookas and knives. So if they ever make an Austin Powers 4, we could see the return of Robin. Oh, my God. I would <laughs> bloody love that. Mike, are you listening? Number four, Robin Swallows is back. <laughs> and what about brilliant Will Ferrell? Well, you're both invulnerable. Get you both together. He, he, had, a, he had a smaller role than me. He had a smaller True. role than me. And look at the career. Damn, if only people had seen that company. <laughs> I've, I've made a career, I've accidentally made a career out of having gorgeous big roles in movies that didn't get seen too much, like Bad Company and Letters from a Killer, and then roles that are just too small to put me over the top in massive blockbusters like Austin Powers' Big Fat Greek Wedding, even Strictly Ballroom, although Strictly was a pretty substantial role. Definitely, yeah. But but later, when I end up in like Austin Powers and and even uh, Big Fat Greek Wedding, the roles are just two scenes short. 
maybe big enough to uh, shove me a little further. When I say shove me further, I just want to be working more often. Right. Sure. Because I love it. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Calling all agents. Independent podcasting, much like the spy game, requires considerable resources. Whether it's research, equipment, hosting, or of course, constructing a top secret volcano lair, we're putting out the call for your support. That's right. As you may know, we've activated the Spy Hearts Patreon, home of our ever-growing lineup of Agents in the Field episodes where we decode non-spy films from your favorite spy actors and full film commentaries with more intel than a Basil Exposition briefing. Cam, what have we got in our crosshairs this month? The Enforcer and Muscle Beach Party episodes are live and tune in in December. It's going to be plenty of festive fun as we celebrate the holidays spy hard style. And if that sounds delicious, then become a true spy hard today and join the circus at patreon.com slash spyhards. But before this message self-destructs, Cam, resume the spy jinx. Well, I, I, I want to dive into Strictly Ballroom. I want to, I, I want to pass a doble in Strictly Ballroom right now. <laughs> uh, I wish I could pass a doble. I can just about do a foxtrot. But um, I saw this film years ago. And I mean, you, you say you didn't have the biggest part. I think you're one of the most fun things about the whole film. You bring the energy. Well, thank you. Oh, look, she's a fantastic role. Don't get me wrong. She's a great role. Yeah, she's a really good role. Nothing wrong with Liz Holt as a role. Well, the, the first question I have off the bat, and, and this is not something I found in any research, so I need to ask you. Do, yeah. Did you have dance training before the film where you sort of classically trained at all? I had ballet training as a kid. I had never heard of ballroom dancing when I met Baz Luhrmann. Oh. So I go to meet Baz. I go to meet Baz uh, about the role. And he pulls out a bunch of photographs, just literally four by sixes. And he's just got like 40 photographs that he's taken at a ballroom dance competition. And he's showing them to me. And I'm like, I don't even know about this world. What are these people? He said, yeah, yeah, if they're blonde, they dye their hair dark. If they're dark, they bleach it white. If they're mousy, they go bright red. If they're... He's like, no one looks like they actually look. So if you got this role, would you go platinum blonde? And I said, oh, my God, I've waited my whole career to go platinum blonde because I'm literally obsessed with Debbie Harry from Blondie. So I was I was thrilled when he asked me at 26 years old to please go platinum blonde. So, yeah, I mean, I didn't know anything about that world and I had done ballet from five years old. So I know I didn't know anything about ballroom dance. So we were thrown in a room uh, five days a week, about eight hours a day or seven hours a day with uh, dance teachers and we were taught samba, salsa, uh, tango, foxtrot, like all of it. We were taught all those dances uh, in it for about five weeks, like training hard, got in incredible shape and, and had a ball and then got doubled. I mean, there's totally a double for me in that movie too. And she was she was wonderful, but she does my heavy, the heavy duty when Tom uh, Paul Mercurio throws me around his body, that's her. And when he takes me by the hand and spins me, it's called stir the pot. That's her doing that crazy fast spin. Other than that, I did all my dancing. Right. Catherine Martin and the costume department, 
Those costumes oh. and the colours oh, yeah. were incredible. And I remember learning a lot at my first meeting with her because I walked in and I said, you know, she asked me about my character and how I felt and if I had any thoughts. Um, but she was a clear genius and knew exactly what she was doing. But she was, you know, generous and asked me about my thoughts. And I said, oh, maybe she's wearing, my character's wearing like Barbie pink. And she went, pink, pink makes you likeable. I'm like, oh, I never wear yellow. Like it wasn't a colour I related to. And she said, no, 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 you're the caged canary doing it the right way to win. <laughs> You're all wound up and we want to kind of feel uncomfortable around you and yellow is the colour of madness. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God, you're genius. And in I went in that crazy bright yellow and then ended up in golds when she's in the, in the finale and all that stuff. But, yeah, yellow all the way for Liz Holt. And I'm curious, you know, Boz Luhrmann has such a distinct visual style. And it, it's just awesome. And to see it, you know, evolve over the years. But I'm really interested to know, just as an actor, the kind of direction he's giving, because when you watch his movies, it feels like everything is just so painterly. Yes. Well, he he definitely um, gives direction and has a very strong vision of what he wants. Um, but he also uh, gives you freedom to explore and to find it. And he likes to fan the fire. So he adds kerosene. So I remember him wanting me to up it and turn it up, turn it up, turn it up. And I was like, really, big guy? It's going to be insane. He goes, no, no, no. I want you bursting out those doors in the biggest, <laughs> in the biggest tantrum we've ever seen. Show me the biggest. So on that final take where she just screams and it's such a long scream that ends in that sort of, ah! I run out of air and, you know, I watched it back and I went, oh, my God, I never would have done that on my own. <laughs> I wouldn't have gone that far. Like, he was amazing. But the visual style, I have to give credit to Catherine. Like, his movies look like that because of Catherine. I mean, she's she's his designer and, yeah, he's got a very strong style for sure, but it's work that they do together. And with and with Strictly Ballroom, it you know it's when you're and you're sort of working in Australia at that point. But you've been working as an actor for several years by this stage. So when Baz came to you with the role, or you auditioned for it, you mentioned before. But you know, was that something you were called about, or was it you just pitched for? Well, that's an interesting story because I, the woman who played the mother of Paul Mercurio, Pat Thompson. Yeah. She had told me about it. She said you need to go in on this. I went in on the on it the other day and I rang my agent. My agent rang me back and said, you know what, we spoke to casting and they said, you don't have a dancer's body. They're looking for dancers with dancer bodies. Again, I was a curvy 5'1 and I went, oh, okay. And something went down. I guess maybe they cast Paul Mercurio and suddenly needed somebody tiny because if they put a 5'8 to him, because he was only about 5'6". Five seven. So if, if they put a tall girl next to him, she was going to swamp him. Right. So they came back around and asked me to come in and audition. And again, I knew Baz a little bit from round the traps, just because he was an actor in Sydney. I'd actually weirdly met him as a teenager, and this is a strange story. He was brought to my seventeenth birthday party. I think it was <laughs> okay. like I had a big seventeenth birthday party. 
And a girl named Gabrielle Mason came to my birthday party. She was a friend from my acting class that I did on the weekend. She brought this guy. And I remember he walked in and he had such charisma and attitude. And I thought, who's that brat that I want to get to know? <laughs> like he just, he was the coolest guy in the world. And he was just really cool in a kind of bratty, chic sort of punk. 80s way I get it wasn't even the 80s it was like the very late 70s um and that was bloody Baz Luhrmann I never met him again like he just came to my party with her and it was a big party it was like my family home filled with 100 kids right later down the track I am aware of him just as an actor around town I don't know him mm. deeply well and Strictly was his first directorial so he's not a star director he's just that actor Baz Luhrmann is directing this film about a ballroom world and he'd come out of NIDA and I knew his name and so yeah I go to my audition and I sit down and I'm like hi I don't know if I sat at that audition that first meeting I don't know if I walked and said you came to my birthday party with Gabriel because I was 26 at that point and he'd come to my 17th birthday. So it was like nine years earlier. I don't think I cited it. I don't even know if I ever mentioned it while we were shooting. I must have. There's no way I wouldn't You have. must have. You must have. Funny if he's hearing about it right now, if he ever listens to this podcast for the first time. Um, but, uh, yeah, so he showed me all the photographs of that world and he asked me to come back the next day act some scenes and do some dancing so i i prepared scenes came back and acted them and then i was put in a studio a dance studio with john mr cha-cha our choreographer mm -hmm. and he quickly taught us some dancing taught me some dancing and so i had to dance that for them so it was kind of a dance audition and an acting audition so obviously the acting audition i felt confident and you know tried to knock it out of the park and the dance audition, I did my best to keep up. And lucky I had a ballet background, I guess, but I definitely had no uh, background in partner dancing. So I was learning as I went. I guess I picked it up quickly. And then I loved the process of learning it for the film. Like I loved the rehearsal period of Strictly Ballroom is almost mm. more enjoyable of a memory than the filmmaking. And trust me, the filmmaking was deeply enjoyable. But the rehearsal period was joyful it was just beautiful going to work every day i just loved it so much is there a is there a particular liz holt scene that you hold near and dear to your heart looking back on the film yes let me think it probably is that sequence of the arguments coming out of the two doors and then going away from him slipping on the wax and then coming back in, doing the tango, ending with the Ken Railings moment. I mean, that's the chunkiest amount of stuff I had to do. And it's such a great journey, all in the space of four minutes, whatever it is, with such great jokes and tags and choreography in there. It's pretty great. And you make an amazing comedy duo with uh, John Hannon in the movie. Oh, my God. He is just a joy. He's a joy. He was so much fun. We had so much fun. Laughed every single day. Again, evil twinkle in the eye, <laughs> one of the funniest men I've ever met, and just a brilliant actor. And we just had nothing but fun in rehearsal. And I got to dance with him so much. It was fantastic. Have you, have you kept up the dancing since? Yeah. I mean, 
I threw a little bit into the first Greek wedding. Joey Fitzgerald mm -hmm. and I do a quick little partner dance at the wedding. We just partner up and he spins me a little bit. We do a little bit of spinning in and out. If you rewatch it, in the, I'm in the blue bridesmaid dress. And he later goes on, of course, to do Dancing with the Stars, but also was a dancer anyway and in sync. Uh, he's a beautiful dancer. And so we, we were just dancing. We were just mucking around on the set that night when we were shooting because there was a band there and we were all dolled up. Like we were literally doing that for fun between takes and Nia and the director saw it and went, oh, yeah, let's put that in. Hmm. Because, you know, we were brother and sister who hated each other and kept smacking each other and not getting on. But when they saw us dancing and showing off, they said, fantastic, let's throw that in. And so, it, it you know, it's a moment in the film. Uh, but, yes, I've kept the dancing up every time I'm somewhere uh, that that can possibly have a moment in life, a wedding or somewhere where I can jump on a floor or, you know, I've gone to swing nights. And actually I, I met a guy in New York who became a really good friend called Russell Steinberg who's incredibly funny and does a character called Johnny Favor. He performs him live at the box and various places. He's an extraordinary performer. Uh, Russell and I used to dance around New York, just around the scene, and a young director, Sophie Alstergren from Australia, saw us dancing one night and wrote a short film around us for us, uh, which is all dance. It's a short film that is 50% a dance telling the story, and that's with uh, Russell, Russell Steinberg and I in Sophie's short film. I'd say I'd hate to be in one of those dance rooms in New York when they see you walk in and like, oh my God, she was in Strictly. <laughs> ah, Look, I can't I'm, compete with that. I'm not that great. I just love doing it. Um, well, I, I was going to ask, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't, but are you aware of the effect that Strictly Ballroom had in the UK? Yeah. I think, didn't it start the show Strictly Come Dancing or whatever? Basically, yeah, well, it, it brought it, it back. Brought it back. So it used to be called Come Dancing, and then Strictly happened. Yeah, Strictly Ballroom happened, and they brought it back as Strictly Come Dancing. And uh, I literally got married last weekend. This is no word of a lie. I got married last weekend, and oh, congratulations! Thank you. And for my wedding night, <laughs> my my partner decided that they wanted to watch Strictly Come Dancing at the end of the night. So uh, <laughs> somehow you were a part of the the wedding. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you for joining us. I love that. I love that. Um, but I, I mean, I, we could touch on Big Fat Greek Wedding. I, I wanted to quickly touch on something you did quite recently, actually, and that is pop up in Twin Peaks. Oh, yes. Oh, my God. I mean, again, not, not a big role, but just to be chosen by David to be in anything was just a joy. And to watch him work on set, watch him direct other actors that had more to do, watch how beautifully he spoke to them. Um, just, he was gorgeous, just a gorgeous artist to work with. I've been very lucky with directors. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't mean to show off, but Baz Luhrmann, Mike Nichols, Jay Roach, David Lynch, Ray Lawrence, Australia mm -hmm. of the movie Bliss, later Lantana because I introduced him to my ex. They met, they did Lantana. I introduced those two men. I said, you guys have to work together. That was the best work I think my ex-husband ever did. All his work is brilliant, but Lantana was exceptional. 
yeah, I've been spoiled. I've had a riches of, of really extraordinary directors. I mean, just uh, lastly, then on sort of on the Twin Peaks side of things is, um, I mean, you were in the sort of the Roadhouse, James Hurley, sort of the classic characters from the show. Did you ever watch the original Twin Peaks at all? Oh, yes, I watched all of the original. I loved it to death. Yeah, I loved it. Yeah. And, and when I was only on set that one day in the Roadhouse. That's it. That one scene, just I've got two lines or whatever, overseeing their love story, mm. you know, saying weird or whatever I was saying. It is Twin Peaks. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, as we're wrapping up, a question I always like to ask when we have guests on the show, um, although I may know the answer based on what, on, on what we were talking about earlier, but what's a film from your filmography that you think people should check out that didn't get enough love? It's hard to choose because a part of me wants to say Bad Company. Um, I, lo- I, I had an enjoyable, incredible time making Letters from a Killer, but I don't think it's the film that Bad Company is, but I had a really fun, juicy role in that film and I had a beautiful time with Patrick Swayze, but it's not the film that Bad Company is. Um, I also did a film in Australia called Brilliant Lies that I had a really decent, great role in. I was nominated for it Um, and that's a really good film too. I don't know how much attention that had. and then I did a tiny little really interesting film called Backlash that Bill Bennett made that's also very interesting and is worth a look. So, I mean, there's a few little quiet films like that. Okay. Uh, I mean, I, I thought you were going to go automatically for Bad Company, but I appreciate there's a few other options there. No, no, I, I, I think I do go automatically to Bad Company because Bang for Buck, it's a really good film. Mm-hmm. It's really watchable and fun. And, and good and, and stylish and extremely well made. So, yeah, I think if I have to pick, I pick Bad Company. Solid answer. Now, um, what is it you're currently working on? What am I currently working on? Uh, the last thing I did was Greek Wedding Number 3, which is shot mm-hmm. in Greece. And prior to that, just before the pandemic, I did uh, Kim Cattrall's show, Filthy Rich. Yeah. It was great fun, uh, but it did not get picked up for a second season, but it can still be watched on Hulu, FX Hulu. Um, That was good fun, but that was like a shiny nighttime soap that is deliciously fun to watch, and I'm proud of my work and I really enjoyed my character, and the creators and makers were really wonderful guys. It was great people and, and women, great people to work with, uh, headed up by Tate Taylor, and he was so talented and so great. And they asked for me. Here we go. I'd done about 40 auditions into the abyss with no result. And then the phone rings. Oh, can Gia come to New Orleans in two days and play this role? So without an audition, they offer me this juicy, beautiful role of Veronica. And so it's so funny, this business. You can work your ass off trying to beg for jobs and then just get handed a beautiful one sometimes. <laughs> so that's, that's a godsend, thank God. Uh, but on the horizon for me, I really don't know. I don't know what the next job is. I, I, I did a play reading of a play with an Australian playwright 
and he called me last night he would really like to do a production of that somewhere mm -hmm. and he's interested in me either acting in it or actually directing a version of it because i like to direct as well now i've directed one tiny short film that was part of a feature mm -hmm. uh, that actually has been winning a lot of awards around the world right now called everything i ever wanted to tell my daughter about men it's written and starring by Lorianne Haynes. Uh, I was one of 21 female directors that directed a portion of it. So again, proud of my work in that. And I got to work with uh, Nathan Fillion oh, yeah. and Lorianne Haynes, the writer, actress. Uh, so they were my stars and I'm proud of my short and it's one of the scenes in the film. Uh, so I'm open now. I want to I want to do everything. Well, not everything. I want to. I want to direct some more, and I want to keep acting till I'm 103. Very specific and age there. I like it. Yeah, three is my lucky number, and I just wanted to be over 100 <laughs> in, that, in that story. So we'll say 103, or I guess I could say till I'm 300. Um, uh, but I don't know what's around the corner. I auditioned yesterday. I sent off a tape for a tiny role but a nice role in a beautiful film that will star Elizabeth Banks, who I love. And this film is so well written. It's fantastic. So I would absolutely love to book that, but who knows? The audition went yesterday. We'll see. We'll see what hands it lands in and if it's watched and who else they're out to. It's hard to get a job these days. There's a lot of competition, a lot of brilliant people. And it seems like there's a million shows, so I can't really imagine for a second why I'm not fully employed at all times. <laughs> it seems to be a lot of shows, and I reckon I'm all right and I've proved myself. We just got to show people bad company. That's all you got to say. But it's hard. It's hard to get a job. Well, I, I was actually noticing a bit of a serendipitous uh, occurrence here because your, one of your most recent credits is in Lauren and Rose. Oh, yes. Proud um, of that. With Jacqueline Bissett, who we had on the show earlier this year, and she spoke about Jacqueline. the show, so it's actually funny yeah. you've both been on. Yeah, yeah, no, she's fantastic, and that movie's beautiful. Yeah, and that filmmaker Russell Brown is a delight. I was in another one of his films too. The film is Annie, Annie and the Gypsy. Well, the last question, and this question has gone to every single guest we've ever had on this show. It's going to put you on the spot, but here it is. We talk about spy movies every week. This week it's Bad Company, but we want to know from you, Gia, what is your favourite spy movie of all time? It's not my genre. <laughs> like, you'll have one. You'll have one, trust me. Okay, okay. Okay, so it can just be any movie that has spies in it? That, yeah. What's up, Doc? That's my answer. There you go. What's up, Doc opens with a guy saying, follow that car. And it's like a CIA spy guy following things, trying to get the documents, but it's really a love story where Ryan O'Neill, who's about to marry Madeleine Kahn, falls in love with Barbara Streisand and the fun ensues. Like it's a it's a 70s romantic comedy, mm -hmm. Scribble, with a nod to the 30s Scribble comedies, directed by Peter Bogdanovich. It's a family film favourite because of a family story and it's become... <laughs> become almost my life's work to meet everybody connected with the film and I've met most of them and and became friends with Madeline Khan, God rest her beautiful soul. Um, 
Yeah, no, that's a very special film. As children, we were on a boat from Australia to London, four weeks on a boat, 1973. Mum and Dad were like, piss off, go, go watch the movie. They kept throwing us down to the cinema and the three children, six, eight and ten, I was eight, we were down there watching What's Up Doc over and over and over till we knew every line of dialogue. It's the film at eight years old that made me want to be an actress and probably want to be a comedic actress and it would be based on Madeline Kahn. Barbara was brilliant in it, but I was obsessed with Madeline, who plays the fiancé. Uh, later in my life, when I meet my ex, he had just done a movie with Madeline Kahn, so I meet Madeline, wow. become friends with her. She comes to my 30th birthday. He did another movie with her, and then later I meet Bogdanovich, I meet Ryan O'Neill, I meet Streisand at a screening of Strictly Ballroom. I meet all of them systematically, like a lot of the people from the film, and it results in me meeting uh, uh, Buck Henry, the writer. I meet him at my primary colours opening night hmm. and I'm all emotional and I go up to Buck Henry and I'm telling him the story I'm telling you guys and I start to cry. I'm like, you wrote my favourite <laughs> film, you know, and I'm like crying and he's laughing at this actress falling apart on the red carpet. Yeah, so I will say that What's Up Doc is my favourite spy film, <laughs> which is a silly answer because it's just got a little bit of spies in it. But. No, but you know what? That's a great answer because A, we've never had that one. No one has ever mentioned that on the show. But B, yeah. you had the best story of anyone we've ever had about why they chose that as their favourite. Yeah, I mean, it's an extraordinary story, isn't it? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Definitely, yeah. It really is an extraordinary story. Well, I, I, there's few people in this world that could walk the line between bad company and Austin Powers, but you did it. And I'm so glad you could be here to uh, help us chart the course. Thank you for um, having Gia, you, th thank you. No, thank you, Gia, for coming on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on here. And um, yeah, I can't wait to see what you do next. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure. And it was lovely to meet you guys. Thank you for having me. And I can't wait. I can't wait to see what I do next. I hope it's something. Wonderful. <laughs> my my nephew just got into film school in Australia. He's literally seventeen, and I said, "Timothy, darling, it's your job now to Jackie Weaver me <laughs> to my Oscar." And I will never stop thanking you. <laughs> I'm kidding, but I'm also like. <laughs> but if it happens, it happens. If it happens, it happens. Come on, Timothy. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, there you go. That was our chat with Gia Carides. Boy, oh boy, I did not uh, anticipate this chat. I think it was a fantastic discussion with Gia. She gave it her all and told us so many stories about Bad Company and Austin Powers, Twin Peaks. I did not expect this. No, this was a real pleasure. And one of the things I really enjoyed was this is something we've come across a few times now. When we talk to you know filmmakers or actors or writers about a project that they really believed in that didn't necessarily take the world by storm. There's a lot of enthusiasm to share those stories because they're not out there. You go to the Bad Company Wikipedia page, pretty much blank. And she was genuinely, you know, giving of her time and enthusiastic about telling the stories about, you know, a movie we very much enjoyed reviewing. No, absolutely. And, and hearing about, you know, this, this, is, this was her first, this being Bad Company, her first major role in, in America. Like what a what a gig to get working with Ellen Barkin, Lawrence Fishburne. I mean, the whole cast were fantastic, and she was so passionate about this film, and she really wanted to share that with us. And some of the stories we learnt along the way, 
you know, about the sort of the flight training, about the amazing costumes that she went through with the film, just working with like <laughs> learning like. Ellen is perhaps a little bit frosty, but she means well. Lawrence is smooth and sophisticated. All the things that you want to hear about these actors. And Gia was able to bring that to us. Yeah. And when she kind of described, you know, the, these other actors, you can see why they were pretty well cast in the movie in their particular parts. And it's also really fun to hear that, you know, there was notes about her maybe toning down the accent. But I think that her accent really works for the film. I think it really works for the character. Adds to the sort of sincerity of the character and and you know we were quite honest about you know some of her behavior in the film is not particularly pure but hmm. overall she is perhaps the nicest person in the film i don't think anyone's particularly nice i'm not sure i want to go to dinner with any of them but of any of the characters it probably would be julie ames yeah her character reminds me a little bit of julia fox's character in uncut gems where it's someone who could easily be seen as kind of a sideline character, but very much comes into their own over the course of the film. And that was something I found very interesting doing the research on Bad Company for this interview, rewatching it and kind of tracking her progress through her scenes. But hey, we've got many years of this podcast and, you know, we've got to save some of the good stuff for later on. But it was very exciting to get to talk about Austin Powers for the first time on this show. So far, we have not talked to anyone who's worked in that world. We've talked to a lot of, you know, actors or, you know, writers who've appeared or worked on, you know, like Bond stuff, for example. Kind of these known franchises. We've talked to people who worked on Mission Impossible movies. This was, to the best of my memory, the first time we've had someone kind of give us a glimpse into the making of the Austin Powers films. I think we have had someone on the show that did a very small part in an Austin Powers film. Like, I've got a little nudge in the back of my head to saying that, but... I could be wrong. Listeners, correct me. Please do. I love being corrected. Uh, but yeah, talking about Austin Powers and, you know, it's the second film. And yeah, we didn't dig too much into it, but, you know, it's quite a highly sexualized role. But, you know, Gia took it as just a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. And it's also great to hear that the director of the film recognized her and knew her work from Strictly Ballroom. And I, I didn't get a chance to ask her about this, but like I can see a lot of Liz Holt in Robin Swallows. Like that sort of passion and that fire that both characters have. There's definitely a continuity there. And it makes sense now knowing that the director had seen her in Strictly Ballroom and appreciated her role. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, whether it is Austin Powers or her work in Strictly Ballroom, those characters you know, have differing amounts of screen time, but they both really pop and are memorable as we continue onwards, like people remember Robin Swallows in Austin Powers, despite the fact she really has just one major scene at the start. There are, of course, some deleted scenes we also talked about with her in the film. But, you know, in terms of screen time, that character really does stick. Absolutely. And, you know, also it was nice to sort of refresh her memory about the scene she'd forgotten she'd even shot with being pulled out of the car boot. I'll send her a link to the, uh, the deleted scene uh, later on after this discussion. But, you know, and also, Cam, it's not often we get to speak to people that work with Baz Luhrmann. No, not yet, I don't think. Not yet. I'm sure there'll be more. Yeah. But uh, I'm looking at you, Tom Hanks. The man with one red shoe, Spymaster interview, has to happen at some point. Yeah, who knows? I mean, if Mike Myers is a question mark in the future, Tom Hanks is also a question mark, right? It, uh, it's, a, it's a fairly slim question mark, but I will take the question mark <laughs> nonetheless. And I, yeah, I have a lot of love for Strictly Ballroom. Uh, it's a big... I mentioned the wedding story. That's a genuine thing that happened to me literally last weekend after my wedding day. I went back and watched Strictly Come Dancing here in the UK. 
and that a lot of that is to do with strictly ballroom the film itself um so in a way Giacarides has been tied into my existence for a very long time uh and and will be going forward with the wedding vows i made and again it's not often we get to speak to someone who worked with david lynch in twin peaks no less and her character's name in twin peaks was the same name as your now wife it's all connected it is indeed as as david lynch would like it to be that's right yeah i'm not gonna do the rest of this chat in reverse though so don't worry it won't be confusing <laughs> but uh yeah uh, yeah and we spoke about a couple of, like what ifs like the julie ames character what might happen to her in the future if you guys have any sort of idea of what would happen to her character going forward let us know and would you like to see an austin powers for hmm I think I would personally, but uh, I think the jury might be out for some people. But let us know again if you'd like to hear that. But Cam, the question goes to you, sir. I think we have a bit of a big week next week. Yes, it is Quantum of Solace week. We are going to be, first off, tackling Quantum of Solace with a big review we've got with special guest David Zaritsky from the Bond Experience. This one is going to be a blast. And towards the end of the week, we'll have an interview out with actor Rufus Wright, who played the Treasury agent, who has the big scene with the touch screens and all that sort of stuff, talking to uh, M and Bond. We're going to talk to him about, you know, basically playing a small part in that film and also working on some other major spy films that you all know and love. Yeah, he's got some great spy credentials and we have a really fun discussion with him about sort of working in spy movies and his experiences with that. And... Not only do we have that interview, we have another two more interviews for you. It's a real smorgasbord of Bond. We have Roberto Schaefer, the cinematographer of Quantum of Solace, joining us the following week. And we're also speaking to Mr. Matt Whitecross, the director of the recent Amazon Prime Sound of 007 documentary. It's a fabulous documentary. I suggest you all check it out if you haven't already. And Matt really breaks it down with us. So that's four Bond episodes in two weeks. Uh, I mean, it is the season of giving after all. Definitely, definitely. So there you go, folks. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to watch Quantum of Solace, if you haven't already, and settle in for four whole James Bond episodes from your favorite spy hards. Uh, If you like what you heard on this interview, please consider leaving us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. And do not forget to follow us discreetly on social media at spyhards that's s-p-y-h-a-r-d-s on facebook twitter and instagram but until next week listeners remember spits or swallows either way it's a pleasure (laughs) 